Well, hey, good evening. We're so glad you guys are here. Hey, my name is Brandon. Uh, I'm the worship director here, and they gave me the pulpit tonight, so it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, so I've, I've been on staff here for seven years, and I can honestly tell you we're not just fellow employees hired by a company, but uh, your staff and your elders, we're, we're like best friends. And I think you'd agree that the best part of being best friends is pranking one another, right? Um, at least that's what Pastor Mark thinks. Um, so about a year ago, Mark thought it would be cool to wait for us and scare us every day when we came in for work. And for some reason, he thought, especially me, like I'd be an easy target. And so literally for two months, every day, Mark would wait and I'd see his face in the window and he's watching for my car and he'd go hide behind the door. He'd wait for me to get up from our communal office and back and go to the bathroom and he'd like put trash cans in front of him and he'd crouch down and he'd get me. There's actually a water closet in back uh, where our back hallway used to be and he dismantled the doorknob from it so he could see when I would walk past the hallway and he would scare me. And I'm pretty patient, you know, I'm pretty chill. But I remember it got to a point where I just looked at him and I go, dude, it's coming, it's coming. And you know Mark, he's kind of college football swag. He's like, prove it, dude, whatever. <laughs> and I looked at him, I said, Listen, man, I know you. I've been under your care for 11 years. You're good at everything except one thing, and that's waiting. You are terrible at being patient for things. So I said, I'm gonna wait you out, and I promise you, I'm warning you, bro, that it's gonna be nuclear. <laughs> and so, you know, Mark does what he does best, and he waited a couple days, and then he gave up. And uh, a lot of you guys know this past week, Mark and a crew went to Ecuador, uh, and so I thought, man, Mark's leaving for Ecuador this Wednesday. He's preaching. I know he had a couple other speaking engagements, so he's super busy. I'm like, this is the time. This is the time. So on Tuesday evening, I got a bunch of dudes together, and we're like, what can we do? So here's what we did. Um, you guys ever had like a door alarm? If you're in college or on your door or on your window, like if these two pieces separate, this alarm goes off, and it's abrasively loud. So instead of buying one or two, we bought six. <laughs> and one of them was motion activated, so it was on a 45-second delay. And Justin, our technician, he was really, like, savvy about this, and he used superglue. I don't know the intricate details, but he used superglue to keep it to where Mark couldn't shut these off once they went off. <laughs> and I know Mark's routine, so I know in the morning he's going to this back office on Wednesday to study his sermon. And so we put all these door alarms on this door, and we looked at each other, and we're like, is this enough? And we're like, no. So we, we went back and rummaged in this back garage. And any of you that have ever experienced like churches, you know there's always a room that just collects junk and nobody knows how it gets there. And we found this awesome Burger King mask. And I don't know, I, apparently somebody for Halloween or a costume party thought it would be funny to dress up as the Burger King. And then they donated the mask to the church. Um, so we take this mask and we make this giant mannequin next to the door and we turn out all the lights. So when Mark walks in, door alarms, giant Burger King mannequin. And then we were like, so if we were Mark at this point, what would we do? And we thought we would take our computer that we left in there the night before, big mistake. We would take our computer, computer and go somewhere else and study. So we went and we bought some industrial grade Velcro 
<laughs> and we Velcroed it down. So these alarms are going off. He can't shut it off. Burger King man's here, and he's trying to pull his computer off the table. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could get a picture of it? It's coming, bro, I told you. <laughs> Funny, here's, Mark doesn't say anything either that morning. It's like 10 o'clock, I'm working. Mark doesn't say anything. So I just text him, I said, dude, did it get you? And this is his text message to me. It was your best effort yet, dot, dot. Well, well done. Scary, annoying, cumbersome, all at the same time. And then he sent this last text, like a river of disaster. <laughs> Listen, it's funny, but I think we're, we're wired in a way where we're similar to Mark, where we ignore warnings and we ignore promises. And it's said in jest, obviously, between Mark and I, but there are intense promises and intense warnings in Scripture that, for some reason, I feel prone to forget them and ignore them. And tonight, we're going to study some heavy stuff. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, would you open with me to Joshua chapter 23? We're going to study three verses tonight. And I must admit to you, I am comfortable behind a guitar. I am a nervous wreck this evening, but God's faithful. Joshua is old, and he knows he's getting ready to die. And he says, man, if there's going to be success with you guys, if you as Israelites are going to be successful, there's some things you've got to know. And he's addressing the leaders in this chapter. And he's making this case, and it's the same case I'll make to you this evening. To remain under the shelter of God's covenant is what is best for us. And listen, God knows this, and so he's going to allure you with a couple things. He's going to allure you with good, merciful, amazing promises. And he's also going to allure you with severe, strong warnings because he loves you. So we pick up in verse 14, and this is what it says. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, which is a really hipster way of saying I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Listen, Joshua knows for them to be successful after his passing, they got to do a couple things. And one of them is remember how faithful God is to the things he says he's going to do. And when we see reminders in scriptures, it's because we're prone to forget and we're prone to disbelieve. And so tonight I want to outline, it's not an exhaustive list, but I want to outline for you some reasons why we feel like God's not a promise keeper. There are things that are going to wage war against you and convince you that God, maybe, maybe you're not a person of your word. Maybe you won't honor your promises. So I want to go through these with you. First reason I think we feel like God isn't a promise keeper is those around us fail to keep their promises. I think you would agree that broken promises are pretty formative to belief structures. Everything we do says something. And look, I I have a daughter, she's two, and I'm just now starting to get to the point where she recognizes what I'm saying. She remembers what I'm saying. So if I leave in the morning and I'm like, hey, when when we get home, let's go to the park. She remembers that. And as much as in my mind I would like to 
de-escalate the level of that promise and think that it's not formative on her, it is. If I come home and I don't make good on that promise to take her to the park, there is the potential that when she grows up to say, why would God keep his promises when my daddy couldn't keep his? And I don't want us to sit under the condemnation tonight. Believe me, we're going to get to some good news. But brothers and sisters, if we are parents, there is... There's responsibility on us to be people of our word because we are ambassadors for a man of his word. I think those that have experienced infidelity in their marriage, these promises we've made to one another to stay faithful, I can imagine it's pretty tough after experiencing that, having that horrible thing done to you, to then turn around and say, I know God's a man of his word, but my husband couldn't keep his. And riddled throughout all this, I want to remind us that God's mercy supersedes this. And so you don't have to be a product of your environment. But to believe that our actions aren't formative is foolish. Friends, we believe that God isn't a promise keeper a lot of times because of the formative actions of those around us. Second reason is this. Believe the veil of sin shields our eyes from his promises. You might ask, what's a veil? What's a veil? Any ladies in here when they get married, do they wear a veil? Anybody here? I've raised my hand. I didn't wear a veil when I got married. <laughs> a couple of you. So it's, it's kind of it's old school. I think it's actually pretty awesome, but it's not something that a lot of people do anymore. But you'll remember, until your husband takes the veil off of your face, it kind of obscures vision. It distorts You guys remember the veil in the New Testament that that tears when Jesus rises from the dead? It was this giant curtain that separated the worshiper from the Holy of Holies. And it, it literally completely blinded us so we couldn't see what was behind it. Sin has this effect. And sin will blind you from the very good promises of God. Let me illustrate for you. There's a wonderful promise in 1 Corinthians 10. It says this, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's good news. That's a good promise. But I can tell you from experience, when you're wrapped up in habitual sin, that seems so far-fetched. How in the world could God be serious about his promise to provide a way out when I feel so wrapped up and trapped by this sin? The veil of sin will shield your eyes from God's promise-keeping ability, I promise you. But I want to offer hope to you this evening. Even if you find yourself wrapped up in sin, we're going to get to some good news. It's not the end of the story. Third reason I think we struggle to believe God isn't a promise-keeper is this. And man, I do this a lot, and I know you do too. I've made his promises into something they're not. I've made his promises into something that they're not. One of the most beautiful promises in all of scripture says this, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And yet what I can do is I can take that promise and make it say, I'll always feel like God is near. Do you see the difference? I will never leave you or forsake you does not equate to me feeling his proximity all the time. 
So what's that do? It sets me up to believe, man, when I feel really alone, maybe God isn't honoring his promise to be near to me. Maybe God has forsaken me. I'll give you another illustration. And I want to say this with the utmost gentleness, but I do believe truth sets us free, and so I think it's pertinent this evening. We love our brothers in the prosperity movement. We love them. We care for them. But we vehemently disagree with their interpretation of Jesus' promise to give us life and life abundant. Let me explain. I think oftentimes this movement will make that promise synonymous with material blessing. Listen, the life abundant that Jesus promised you equals money, wealth, well-being. It equals that you're not gonna be sick. Your kids will all know me. And then we have to wrestle with what happens when my wallet's empty? What happens when I'm ill, when I get cancer, when I'm sick? Is God not faithful to give me the life abundant that he promised? By no means. Listen to this. We ought to research and labor over God's authentic promises because the riches of God's authentic promises are far greater than the riches of man-made fabricated promises. Amen? I want to believe what he says and not add words to it. Fourth reason I think that we struggle to believe God is a promise keeper is this. Unresolve. Unresolve. I'm not incredibly astute or well-read, but I really appreciate Charles Spurgeon. And the reason I appreciate Charles Spurgeon is it feels like his whole life is in the midst of unresolve and brokenness, and yet somehow he remains faithful and clings to the promises of God. If you don't know this, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the mid-1800s, had the largest church in the known world at that time. Okay, largest church. at a sanctuary that sat 5,000 people. That was a big deal in England. But Charles Spurgeon was incredibly depressed. He writes that he cried all the time and he didn't know why. His wife was having trouble having babies and at this time gynecology was just becoming a thing and they had introduced some experimental surgeries to try and correct these issues. And they tried this on his wife and ended up debilitating her for the rest of her life. It was dark. Things were broken. It was in the midst of unresolve. I want to read you something from him. And please, it's not going to be on the screen, so listen. This is good. One Sabbath morning, I preached from the text, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is Spurgeon. And though I did not say so, yet I preached my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark, but I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness, the unresolve. On the following Monday evening, a man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance, and his hair seemed to stand straight upright, and his eyes were ready to start from their sockets. Probably looked a lot like Mark in that picture. And he said to me after a little parlaying, I never before in my life heard any man speak 
who seem to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case, but on Sunday morning, you pointed me to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. Spurgeon later says, by God's grace, I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty, but I know I could not have done it if I had not myself been confined into the dungeon in which he lay. He finds himself in the middle of unresolve. Things are broken. I want to tell you about my story of unresolve. And you've heard snippets of it from when I'm behind a guitar, but that's, that's the abbreviated version. And I'll be brief, but many of you remember two and a half years ago when uh, a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus, Dana Edmonds, was diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. And I watched what it did to her family. I watched how terrifying it was. And at this time, my wife, Danielle, was carrying our, our baby, Josephine. And we had just bought a house in Frenchtown. And I did what everybody else does when they see something that's so awful. And I said, what would happen if, if I got cancer? Like, Josie would never know her daddy. My wife would be paying for this house that I just bought on her own, among other fears. And I don't know what, like, actually happened in my dome, but something transitioned from what if I had cancer to believing I have cancer. I believed that I had cancer, and I started to have these phantom pains all over my body, and I started chasing down these phantom pains. I went to the doctor. I had a CAT scan of my brain. I had an X-ray of my lungs. I had a... Uh, what do they call it? Thyroid. Uh, had an ultrasound of my thyroid. Had an ultrasound of my bladder, of my kidneys, of my small intestine. I had a colonoscopy. I had an endoscopy. That was a, that was a fun experience. I had blood work. I had a urinalysis. Chasing down these symptoms because I believed with my whole heart I was dying of cancer. And you fast forward a couple of years, I'd like to tell you that things were completely resolved. They were not in October, I remember I, I led worship one night just in the middle of fearing death and fearing cancer. And I walked off the stage that night and I called Mark. I said, I can't do this anymore, man. I got I to gotta go and I don't know if I'm coming back. Brief commercial break. Your elders are good men. They're good, faithful men and they care more about you they care more about you than what you bring to the table as a parishioner of our church. They care about you. And they said, Brandon, take all the time you need. Here's a list of good Christian counselors that we think can help you. Here's some doctors that might be able to help you treat whatever ailments you have. Take all the time you need. And as much as I would like to tell you that when I came back, things were resolved, they are not. I still, even today, woke up probing my lymph nodes trying to decide if I am dying of lymphoma. You're like, man, this is really dark, dude. In the midst of my unresolve, it is very tempting to believe that God has forgotten me. But I wanna remind you tonight, I feel compelled just like Spurgeon as he heard his own chains clanking. Listen, God hasn't forgotten me. And he hasn't forgotten you. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these may forget, but I won't forget you. This is a promise of God that is too good to be true. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Listen tonight, there are things that are gonna vie for your attention, your affection, and your belief. All waging war against the belief that God is a man of his word, promise-keeping in nature, and I would encourage you to fight that. I know in my heart and in my soul, God is faithful to do every good thing that he has promised. He is, isn't he? Verse 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. Okay. Mark's like, you want to preach, huh? I think it's funny to pull pranks. I'll give you the text about God bringing evil on people. Let me give you a little context so we're not all completely lost. Joshua is referring to the Mosaic Covenant given to Moses and the people on Mount Sinai. You remember this story in Exodus? God goes up on the mountain. God gives them this holy deal. He says, listen, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. But there's some statutes here. There's some rules. And these evil things, these disciplinary evil things, these are the consequence if they should violate the statutes of this covenant. And Joshua is reminding them of this. Now, the passages that outline what these specific things are are very long and very dark and depressing, even more so than my summarization that we're about to go through. But I do want to give you an idea of what he's talking about. These are the specific things that God is promising, hey, if you violate the covenant, if you transgress the covenant, this is what I'm going to do to make sure you remain under the shelter of my covenant because it's what's best for you. It comes in four different tiers. These passages are found in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Just to cite it. If you transgress the covenant, there's going to be a first tier of disciplinary action. And this is what it is. Please listen. Panic. Wasting disease. Fever that consumes your eyes and aches your heart. Your enemy's going to eat your crops. You'll be defeated in battle. You'll retreat all the time. Haters will rule you, and you'll be the tail, and they shall be the head. I don't know if you guys have a dog, but I know Mark's not a dog guy. I'm a dog guy. I got a 100-pound golden German shepherd, and he's awesome. And I want to tell you, there's a huge difference between being the head and the tail, right? Like the head gets treats. The tail sees what the treats become, right? The head gets scratched. I have a two-year-old daughter. The tail gets shut in the door. It's not good to be the tail. And God says, if you transgress the covenant, you're going to be the tail. And he says, if you still don't repent and turn from your sin, there's going to be a second tier. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to render you powerless, defenseless against your enemies. You're not just going to be defeated, but you won't even be able to defend yourself. There'll be drought and your fields won't produce. And if you still won't repent, then I'll strike you with a third tier. And this is where it starts to get kind of heavy. Wild beast will kill your children and destroy your livestock. Whoa. I can't imagine any greater collateral than my child. 
And yet somehow the importance of remaining under this covenant is enough to say, God, like, God's making a statute here that my children are on the line. Should I not remain under this? This is heavy and I know. And should you still rebel against the Lord and not turn, listen to this. God will oppose you and he'll discipline you himself. You'll be struck with famine and oppression so severe, this is crazy, that you will resort to the secret cannibalization of your own children and your sacred places will be destroyed and I'll destroy your communities and there'll be absolute destruction of your agricultural system, scattering of your population and then destruction by the sword. And those who are left would obviously be faint and terrified. These are the things that he's talking about just to give us context. These are the disciplinary evil things that will be brought upon them if they transgress. Verse 16. These things will be brought upon you if, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. This passage absolutely invokes some heavy questioning, and I think rightly so. We don't remember these passages, right? These are the ones we try and stay away from. Here's a few questions that I think have to be addressed. Number one, what's it mean to transgress? I would have made it synonymous with the word sin, and I think you can do that. But I asked Pastor Jared, I said, what would you say it means to, to transgress? What does it mean for transgression? And he said this. Literally, it means to pass by or alienate, to separate from. But he defined it as the purposeful avoidance of good in pursuit of the bad. The purposeful avoidance of good in pursuit of the bad. So this covenant, the shelter of this covenant is good. And should you say, no thanks, I'm passing it by for the bad. That's transgressing the covenant. Okay. So if you transgress the covenant, this is what he's going to do. So I had to ask, the, I think the question that we're all asking right now in our head, is this warning for us? Right? Like, this is pretty stern. I would say this, logistically, no. I do not believe that these consequences are what we would call normative. We see that throughout the context of scripture as well as just a little bit of pragmatism. I know in my heart I've transgressed God's covenant way more than four times, and yet my daughter Josie is still around, right? Like I haven't eaten her, okay? So I do not believe that these outcomes, these scenarios are normative. However, in principle, I do believe this warning is for us. Let me explain. I may not resort to secret cannibalism, of my own children, but I definitely know this, sin will degrade the family structure. Ask anyone who's been stuck and trapped in an adulterous relationship. Ask them how much it has destroyed their family structure. I know this, a neighboring country may not come in and invade our land and disperse us, but I know this, sin will divide the community. Ask Ferguson. And regardless of what side you sit on, it's messed up and broken and sinful. And it's dividing that community and ours. It's sinful. We may not get a fever of the eyes, whatever that is, but I know this, sin's gonna mentally and physically break me down. 
I've seen people be physically sick because they're harboring sin in their heart and they can't confess it. And even you, you know that feeling when you feel sick to your stomach. Ugh. Sin will disperse and isolate you, ultimately making you very lonely. Little commercial break here. One of the reasons we follow up with you when we haven't seen you in Lot family is not because we're attendance Nazis. Right? It's not because we just like, on Monday morning, we take in tallies, we're like 650 people in Lot family. Awesome. No. The reason we follow up with you is that we know the nature of sin will disperse you. It'll make you lonely and you'll push away all the good community that's around you to keep you accountable. And we know, not all the time, it's not definitive, but we know oftentimes one of the first things to happen when things are not right is you'll isolate yourself and remove yourself from community. So please, receive that reproof and love. It's not meant to harass you. You're not just a number. Ultimately, this, sin's gonna enslave you and it's gonna kill you. Like, Brandon, even on this side of the New Testament, Really? The wage of sin is what? Death. The Lord, when he's outlining what's going to happen in these warnings, he ends in Deuteronomy 28 with this statement. And this, beyond the collateral of your own children, had to be super alarming to the Israelite people. The Lord says this, And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will want to buy you. Not only will I leave you to your own devices, but I might leave you where I found you. Oh, and this had to be crushing to the Israelites. God, please don't leave us where you found us. Okay, so this warning is sort of for us. Here's a question. How do I receive God's warnings? How shall I receive God's warning tonight? It'll destroy my family. It'll divide my community. It'll break me down physically. It'll isolate me and enslave me, lead to my death. How shall I receive God's warning then? I would say we're to receive God's warnings in the same way we receive his promised blessings, as his radical and fervent mercy beckoning us to not forsake our first love. These are the catalysts for us to stay underneath the shelter of his covenant. So here's what I want to do. I want to outline three mercies that I have surveyed in God's warning. This is actually how God's warning is merciful. Number one, the word if. If you transgress. If you transgress this covenant. He warns before he convicts. God would have been totally just to say, Listen, I know you guys did this, and so now I'm going to smite you. He doesn't. He warns them. This is a warning. It's not a conviction of guilt. It is preemptive, not postmortem. God's not Monday morning quarterbacking these guys. It's preparatory and not negligent. God so desires your obedience that he'll sacrifice your comfort to do so. This warning is motivated out of love and not harm. I think avoiding disaster through severe dissuasion, through severe methods, is actually way more merciful than negligence leading to an unholy demise. Let me explain, because that's wordy. There's far more mercy in me yelling at the top of my lungs, Josie, get out of the street! 
There's far more mercy in that than me politely watching her be struck by a vehicle. And this is what God is doing. He's saying, listen, to be under my covenant is what's best for you, so get out of the street. I love you. Don't go there. This is the warning of God because he is merciful. So maybe today you've heard his voice even as I'm talking, you're like, dude, these warnings are severe. The author of Hebrews says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Turn from your sin, repent. Second mercy found in God's warning is this. God is faithful to escalate the level of disciplinary action in accordance with our level of rebellion. You notice how this warning is tiered, it's scaled, and he doesn't immediately start off with like, if you transgress, you will eat your babies. He doesn't doesn't start there. He gives them opportunity for repentance and for course correction. You guys as parents, you know this, right? Like I'm the youngest of four, so I remember riding in the car with my dad. We apply this principle all the time and we don't know it. My dad's a pretty stern guy. I remember, you know, we'd be messing around in the back, see, punching each other. My dad would be like, all right, boys, that's enough. You know, of course, that's not the last warning. So you keep punching each other. And your dad's like, okay, that's enough. You can tell dad's getting a little bit serious. But of course, you keep going. And then what's your dad do? Maybe if he's merciful, he gives you another warning. My dad would pull the car over and be like, I'm leaving you where I found you. (laughs) Now, I don't know if my dad's heart was mercy, but I definitely know God's heart's mercy. And he tears his warnings in hope that we would course correct. Change from your ways. Remain under my covenant. It's what's best for you. I think the third way that there is mercy in God's warning is this. God promises that if the iniquity is confessed, he'll mercifully remember his covenant. All this catastrophe can be avoided if you would just say, God, I'm confessing this for what it is, and it's broken. He says this in his his warning in Leviticus 26, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then... Their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. And I'll remember the land. What's keeping you tonight from simply just acknowledging your rebellion? Sinners and saints. What would keep you tonight from confessing, God, I'm so messed up and I need your help and I don't know how to remedy this situation, but I know you promised mercy if I say it, so I'm saying it. Again, his warnings of discipline are promised. They're designed for our repentance, restoration, and to keep us near, not to discourage us and push us away. Maybe that's why we don't confess. We feel like God's just this ogre in the sky. He's not. He wants your nearness. So I read these three verses, I read this whole chapter, and I go, okay, who would be such a fool? Who would be such a fool as to hear these warnings, to hear these amazing promises and not be completely wooed by them? 
Who would be such a fool as to not heed these warnings? And I thought about it. I would. Absolutely. I would hear these warnings day in and day out, and yet I would transgress this covenant. We know from the course of history that God's people didn't heed his warnings or remember his promises. We know from historians like Josephus, this guy that's widely respected for recording stuff that happened in history, he says that during the Babylonian exile, there's a story of this mom who boils her son and the rest of the village smells the meat. And they come in and they, they collectively have a village feast. This is dark. That stuff happens. So who would be a fool as to not heed these warnings? Me? Them? Listen, I know from surveying my life that I've ignored his warnings, I've disbelieved his promises, I've transgressed this covenant. My life is a narrative of selfish ambition that beckons me to worship everything but Jesus. Maybe it's not the worship of gods made of wood or stone, but absolutely I have bowed down to the gods of my own desire and lust, and so have you. So what do we do? I know to remain under God's covenant is what's best for me, but I, I cannot seem to stay under this covenant what do we do? You said we're going to get the good news tonight, right, Brandon? Yes, amen. There's good news tonight. There's good news tonight. Paul said this. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against this law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Look, I know what I wanna do and I wanna honor the covenant. I wanna be faithful to you, God, but everything in my body says no. He relates, he knows. And he says this, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, tonight, you and I, we have broken and transgressed this covenant a thousandfold. We've disbelieved the good promises of God. We haven't been wooed by them to remain under his covenant. We've ignored his mercifully severe warnings. Oh, but friends, there's a better and new covenant tonight. There is a new covenant tonight. And praise God, it is not sealed with the labors of my hands or your hands, but it is sealed with the labors of Jesus' nail-pierced hands. Listen, I've heard this analogy before, so I can't claim it, but it's powerful, so I wanna, I wanna use it. Every one of us has fallen short of the old covenant and its demands. And grace doesn't simply find us and pick us up and brush us off and say, come on, we gotta get going. We gotta fulfill the law's demands. It doesn't just say that. 
Listen, grace finds us through the new covenant. It picks us up, it washes us white as snow, and it puts us on Jesus' shoulder, and we cross the finish line as victors. It's good news tonight. So maybe you've heard these warnings, maybe you've heard these promises, and you hear the voice of God. It's not too late. Would you turn, would you confess, Lord, I need you. I'm trusting not in the work of my own hands, but in the labors of yours. We don't walk in condemnation from our failure tonight, but we walk in celebration from Jesus' success. So what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna partake in a meal, celebrating the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us, covenant breakers. And his blood of the new and wonderful covenant was shed and poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins that we might be qualified. As we partake in this meal, this is what we're remembering. I was once a covenant breaker, but because of Christ, I am a covenant keeper in his eyes. It's good news. So this meal is for believers and believers only. Maybe tonight you believe, come, partake with us. We take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the cup. Tonight we celebrate the new covenant. Would you pray with me and then come as you're ready? Father, I was so far from you. And in every way I transgressed your covenant. I willfully avoided the goodness of your promises and your character that I might pursue the bad. But Jesus, I thank you that you found me. And God, I pray for those in this room that are feeling the weight of their own sin, would they taste and see how good you are tonight? God, would reminders of our complete depravity push us to you to remain under your covenant? And I thank you, God, that this new covenant isn't sealed with any labors of my hands because it's not enough. Jesus, thank you for the finished work. We celebrate you tonight because you're worthy of it. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you come as you're ready?